Okay. If I'm a Posner, if I'm a Posner, <laughs> if I'm a Posner in the 69. <laughs> I we have not been in the same room for a recording session in what feels like truly a month over a month we have not recorded in the same room in over a month and I will tell you why I was gone for 10 days mm-hmm. before then I was sick and then I had COVID she's negative now she being me and we're back in the same room. We're back, baby. It feels so good. To it feels be in so this good. Teal velvet curtained compound Ooh. that we call Koa's bedroom. Is this Koa's bedroom? You know what? It's a guest room, but it is the bed that he sleeps in. He's a guest. <laughs> I prefer to think of him as a guest. So, well, yes. I mean, honestly, realistically, he's only visiting. I mean, he'll probably be gone by the time he's an adult. That's going to make you sad. I you just your face. You got he told me so he was sad. not leaving. He tells me all the time. He says, Mama, when I grow up, even though I'm going to go to college, I'm going to stay home. And I got to tell okay. you, I said the same thing. When you I did? was a kid, I was so homesick and I would leave. I would go to sleepovers and I would cry and I would leave. I also yeah. was afraid of dads. I don't know why, but I was afraid of people's dads. I think that makes sense. That tracks. We got yeah. in trouble because when I was little... When I was in kin, when I was in preschool, I had a best friend and we called her dad Bummer. I don't know what his name was, but we called him Bummer. Was he a bummer? No, I think he was a pretty friendly guy, but we just thought that was a really funny nickname. We also got into a lot of mischief for preschoolers. Um, sorry, I just rolled my eyes because, of course, you got into a bunch of mischief. I ditched. Did I tell you that? That I ditched? You ditched preschool? Yeah, beat what that. What the fuck is wrong How with you? How crazy is that? When I was five, I did walk home from gymnastics. Gymnast, g- gymnastic. I, I just turned into a six-year-old. A gymnastic is up. I walked home and I was like, it's okay. We'll get home. We'll follow the North Star. Like, that sounds exactly what a kid would say. We'll follow the North Star to walk home I mean, home listen, when Disney keeps telling you to follow the fucking North Star, guess what? It seems to your brain it. that you should follow the North Star. We, there was a tire. In the yard. Like wow. one of those Are you a boxcar kid? <laughs> <laughs> Have you and never we lived seen those there. playgrounds and where we, they use those really we lived big... In the, we lived in the tire. We <laughs> made our that home. That was, was We had our own rules. It was Lord of the Flies out there. Like, <laughs> it's preschool. They Sorry. had like an oversized tire that was part of the play equipment. And I remember that I told my friend, I'm like, when they say room 112, time to come in, just don't go in. We'll hide in the tire. We hid in the tire. This is your idea. You remember this being your idea? Oh, it was 100% my idea. <laughs> then they said room 112 time to come in. And I was like, don't go in. Stay in the tire. And we stayed. We heard all the other kids go in. And then I was like, all right, the ghost is clear. And she said, what's that mean? I said, there's no ghosts around. She was like, great. And so we got out of the tire. Wait, and are you serious? Swinging. You said that? Mm-hmm. I remember it. The ghost is clear. That's the cutest Malapropism. I yeah. love that so much. Then we swung on the swings right in front of the window to our classroom. And they came out in two seconds and were like, what are you doing? That's really funny. I did run away once 
and I probably was like six or seven or something. But I remember being like, I'm running away. You guys, I'm running away. Like actively telling everyone I was running away. Did you physically run? I've never run unless absolutely necessary. And in this case, I deemed it was not necessary. Correct. I just And I just went to a bush. Yeah, bored, and I realized, like, I couldn't cross the street. Yeah, it's very boring, but I do, I think that... I should have gone around the block like an idiot. Like, I, you know, I mean, there's no streets, but I still, like, I was a very homesick kid. I would get very homesick, and I told my mom when I was older I wanted to buy the house that I grew up in, and I wanted to live there, and I never wanted to leave it. And now I'm the furthest away of all my siblings. <laughs> I remember... Running away also to a bush. And I wonder if the reason you do that when you're a kid. And we did the whole thing where I tied like um, a cartoon knapsack. Like, like a, a, stick a bundle. With a... Of, what is it called? They're called something specific. A spindle? I don't know what it's called. A hobo bag? No, is that offensive? I think you can say hobo. I think you can say if hobo. If I can say hobo in New Jersey, then I can say hobo. I don't know. The person. But what is this? It's like a spindle. It's like um. No, I don't know, but I, I did that. And I went into a bush, and I think you want to go into a bush because it feels like a fort and like I'll live here in this bush. And you're close to home where you could run and grab some food if need be. I brought it. Well, the funny thing is, I brought like a can of beans, which is only funny because like I can't open the can. Did you? I feel like we've beans. talked about this before. I'm having like flashbacks, but here's what I do want to know Was the moment that you did Dennis the Menace come out? When you got the beans or was it after? Here's why I ask. Do you remember the movie Dennis the Menace with Walter Matthau? Yeah, and it was way after. I'm much older than you. And I ran away way before that was a thing. Okay, because I'll never forget and I've the never scene seen the where they eat. Oh, I loved that movie. Oh. I loved that movie. Well, there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> That's clear based on all of our interactions. <laughs> I want to be very clear. That's a, been a, made abundantly clear. Quinn, I got it. I got Quinn. it. Quinn, not again. And it's not, and that's, that's a so heavy apple to remember juice. The running away um, time in one's life, and like what spawns that behavior, and what and, you do to feel independent. But and my like, parents made me feel very safe. Like I never that's had. That's why we like, did it. Yeah, I was a really homesick kid too. But I also remember having fucking weird friends growing up. I had this one girl I was friends with. Hopefully, whose they're mom, not listeners. I would be surprised if she's alive. It's like a very strange family. It was a single mom and the which is so strange. <laughs> Quinn, I mean listen, we do come from parents who have never no, no. divorced. I feel like I we're actually a pretty rare this anomaly. Mom this mom made hair bows for a living. Not for a living, for a hobby, I believe. And she would like have a ton of stuff that kids would want to play with, like little cute kittens and colored ribbons. And she was making hair bows and like, I have a hair bow line and we weren't allowed to touch any of it. And she would make us model in fashion shows at malls wearing the bows. And we would go to her house and want to like touch and look at the bows and we weren't allowed. And she was always like, play on your own and would like yell at us. And I remember one time we took clothes out of her drawers to try them on and then the mom found out and hit the girl like in front of me a bunch and then was like, she's not allowed to do that. And it was the vibe of like, I would hit you, but I'm not your parent. And I was like very, very scared. That sounds really scary. Isn't that crazy? 
the question is, is did you feel guilty because you totally made her yes. play with the yeah, because it was not. Like, then to I'm me, curious. I'm that curious. happened to me a few times when I was little that I had then friends. Then I'm curious that if who... she said that not because she wanted to hit you, but because she's like, you did this to her. I and mean, it, it was that with vibe. Me, but yeah, I would say I had like a, a few friends growing up that did get hit by their parents and like that they got hit for things we did together. And it was always a weird thing because that was off the table in my house. You know what I mean? But like, although I did ask my mom to hit me. I was like, why don't you just... I think she grounded me once and I was like... Just hit I, me. Can I please get like a spanking? Some people get spanked. Can I, I got please spanked, get a spanking? not with frequency. Like, no, you can't. And I was like, come on. I got spanked, but not with frequency. Probably not something I would do again, but I also am like, you know... Not something you would do again? Get spanked by your parents? I wouldn't get spanked by my parents again. I, I would it? say no, I would skip it. But it wasn't... I think the fear of it was worse than the actual thing. Like, I, I don't think my parents ever actively like hit me like it was mm-hmm. very rare it was never like that wasn't a normal punishment mm. at all um what would you get spanked for what did i get spanked for honestly i think my parents knew the fear was worse than anything of getting spanked mm-hmm. like again nobody's like hitting me with like a full force or anything it was more just like a pat you weren't made but to the anticipation the of it and bring it to your father no <laughs> but it's like but you know like you have but like your parents had that happen to them and so like you know i mean i've talked a lot about on this podcast about like what a relationship with our body image is totally like Every generation, it gets more and more watered down. Like, mm-hmm. I look at, like, my mom and how she, while her body image was impacted and, like, how her mother had impacted it. And, vice, and like, my mother's, you know, it's like there, the body, your body image is passed down through generations, right? And I do think of, like, negative body image or living up to a certain standard. Um, and I think every generation we get better and we do less poor things and i think also like you think the body why are you bringing a body image you think because i think it's similar well what i'm saying is i think like spanking or like hitting your kids or like whatever it was that was way worse on my parents generation and it was worse it was less bad at mine and it's going to be less bad if i have kids like i think it like articles that i read now for parents now are articles that are about balancing what the ideology is now of how to parent which is a little bit um i don't want to call it it's not helicopter parenting but it's doing this thing snowplow like, parenting i don't know what that is snowplow parenting is where you take all the obstacles away from the kids oh no i'm sure i mean i'm sure that's part of it what the but the articles that i keep reading are having to do with the pressure on parents to speak to your child like they're a person, mm-hmm. which is to say, like, we're in this house, show everybody respect, and it's this vibe of going, oh, I see that you're, put on your shoes, and they throw a tantrum. And instead of you going, because I said so, or we got to get the fuck out of here, or, like, put them on, or, or there's going to be a consequence, the vibe now is, I see that you're upset. Mm-hmm. I understand that you don't want to put on shoes and that it's maybe a disappointment and not... And that's probably because you had a hard morning and it's like really, it's like being their therapist a little and then being like, the reason we have to put on shoes is that in order to go outside, I mean, they want you to parent in this way. We're doing every damn thing should take upwards 30 minutes to unpack and explain and honor. And it is a little bit inconvenient 
Um, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And also, I mean, I've said this before, is like kids' brains just aren't formed like an adult. And I think like in terms of like consequences and reasoning, right? Like mm-hmm. kids will know consequences and <laughs> kids are painfully present because they're not able to be like, oh, in 10 minutes, I'll be fine. Even adults have a hard time with that by being like, in 10 minutes, it'll be okay. Tomorrow, I feel sad right now, but tomorrow, I'll feel better. To be honest, I'm a huge fan. Like, if I were to say, like, there's one tactic I use consistently, Jesus Christ, in my parenting, I would say that it's redirection. Because Mm -hmm. I, what you just said, it's the vibe of, like, if Ko is having, like, a crazy tantrum moment, instead of... Every time taking uh, 20 minutes to talk it out and honor it, sometimes it's just like either walking away or moving on to something else right. and coming back to it later. Right. Right. Totally. All I say, I want to be honest. I want to be clear. I did get spanked occasionally when I was a kid, but it was, I don't, I have a very positive relationship with my parents. I don't, I really don't blame them. I don't think that like... They were doing what they thought was right, which I think is the other thing about parenting. It's like we're all humans. And of course there are. I mean, we've done cases of people who are horrible parents. That. That's not my guys. No, I, I was just going to say. There was no Munchausen's by proxy. There was no Munchausen's by proxy in my house. My parents, I had very loving life. I had very loving family. You didn't live chained in the basement. I did not live chained in the basement. So many know. things to be thankful for. So really. many things to be thankful for. But I do think it's, you know, I mean, like, you know. Yeah, I was, I was spanked. I don't even remember what I was spanked for. I. But my parents were doing what they thought was right. What they didn't. They, that's how they were raised, you know? I mean, it's probably not how I will raise my kids. I'm sorry. It's not how I will raise my kids. But there's no... I'm really... There's no anger or animosity Carrie I have. Carrie really doesn't want you guys to be mad at her parents. Can yeah, because they were promise? doing the best they could. Come on, just promise. They're, promise. They're great people. They're the best. I love them so much. You know, because this is a time capsule, let's be honest, we're doing this podcast for your children. But, like... Because it's just going to be, yeah, and maybe no, my kids one day. Totally. This is, just so you know, it's not for you, dear readers. It's for Cohen Griff so that they can go back and be like, wow, my mom was cool. I'm going to be seen as, like, such an important part of your life because of this. Like, because we have 125 episodes. And they're going to be like, what happened to Aunt Carrie? We listened to the podcast. <laughs> Where is she now? And I'll be like, look out your back window, child. Do you see that mound of fresh dirt? In the in the there garden she there, is. there she lies, <laughs> and I'll be in a rocking chair. It's not like I killed you, not to be morbid. It's just, it did it did sound no, like you no, killed no, me. I didn't kill you. You did die though, and you are buried in my garden. But I didn't kill you. God, Carrie. The question is: Is am I good for the grass or not? I'll let you know. <laughs> no, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. We have to thank so many Patreons. Kelly, Kelly, what With the, the hell? Kelly, 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 Kelly. Smelly. You're just a <laughs> swelly. You're super swelly. Not like you're swollen. You're a regular size, but you're swell like the olden days. Like cool. We'll hand you a prize, and it's the prize of our friendship and also more episodes. Kelly, Kelly, that's what we sell-y. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have to fill out all what? these forms. Okay, here's the thing. 
<laughs> what did you just it. say? Amaru! Is that the next one? No. <laughs> this is what it is. Let's <laughs> tell you what's going on inside my head. No, but yes. I have to. Tell me. So Koa got into um, kindergarten. We accepted a kindergarten offer, and now I get... I can't believe that like you get offered... There's an offer for a four-year-old kid. That's It was fucked. on the table, and I accepted. That's fucked. Sorry. So now I'm getting sent millions of emails from a company called Operu Administrator being like, you have to fill out this emergency contact card, this proof of immunization, the student registration, this. There's n- around 19 forms that I have to fill out, and I keep getting prompts that I haven't filled them out, but they have questions on them like, enter your ISOS number. And I'll you Google, your how the fuck do you know what that is? You just and do your iOS no one for your Apple? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to fuck. That's the thing. If it were me, I'd fuck it up. But it's him, so I take it pretty seriously. But every time I look over at my computer screen, I have another email from Aparoo. <laughs> and that Aparoo, the way I'm saying it, I, is just because I listen to a lot of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And he says, So that's, so that's how fun. it is in my head. So wait, you don't I know what this email. thing is. I feel like if you don't, is it, is it have a star? Does it have an asterisk next to it? Like must fill out. Yes. It has a red must that's fill out. Fuck. So I can't submit so you the can't, form. Cause I'm like, oh, we don't know I it. I fill out everything else and save my progress. And then it'll be like, we're just prompting you that it seems like you haven't filled this out. And I'm like, how dare, Appa? <laughs> <laughs> we're fucked. We're fucked. We're fucked. Okay, who's the next person we should thank? Oh, do you want to do that again? All right, very well. Oh, my gosh. How about Mary-Kate? Mary-Kate, Mary-Kate, where the fuck is Ashley? Mary-Kate, Mary-Kate, where are you Elizabeth's sister? Mary-Kate, Mary-Kate, you're a child star. Or not, but you joined our Patreon because we're adults who talk. And it makes you a star to, to us. That was pretty good. I'm into it. All right. Well, fuck it. Do you I, you do... got when you said Mary Kate, your face got so happy. And even as a member of the Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen fan club as a child, it wasn't where your brain went. No, I'm embarrassed. Let's move on. How about Rachel? Rachel, Rachel we're not on a break. With the opposite of being on a break, we it's are on the job. <laughs> on the job, we're not on a break, and we're gonna pivot to thank you for joining. We'll be there for you. Copyright. When the episodes drop, that's the way they were then. Copyright, Quinn. This is a total flop. <laughs> All right, moving on. Pivot. Let's pivot. What's your your favorite Friends episode? Pivot. 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 I do love it. (laughs) Pivot. I think it's so funny. That is probably the best. Anyway, okay. By the way, you're listening to Truly. Darkly. Creepily. That's Quinlan Posner. That's Carrie Ipema. And you are you. And we're I, happy you are you. So fucking happy about it, you guys. What a treat. What a goddamn treat. treat. Here's the thing. I have a pitch for you in this moment, which is I think that I'm supposed to go first. and then I'm supposed to go first. That's better for me. That's what I was going to pitch. So I feel really good because I'm going to do another. Because you're evens and I'm odds. Well, and I'm going to do another. 
two-parter. Unpopular two-parter. I just I, assume people don't like it, but what do I know? I, I kind of like that um, we have such a small listenership, it's granted me the privilege of not hearing from you what you like. And so, <laughs> in the spirit of undiscovered talent, let the games begin, yeah. and I'll do it my way or the highway. Love it. Rated R. In one way or another. Okay, I'm doing a story today that you've heard of, but you probably don't know the intimate details of. Well, we weren't there, so that's fair to assume. I got the information from BuzzFeed, Unsolved Network, how they got how they were caught. Wikipedia, Britannica, Battlefields.org. John Wilkes Booth. Heard of him? Anyone? I wanted to tell the story because, like, Is I not the guy that killed Lincoln. <laughs> is it not? It is. But why did you have to ask that question? Oh my God! Because when you made that face, I was sure I was wrong. That's After how much you I was... said. Heard of him? And then you were like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute, though." Yeah, that's me but with a movie. To check in. <laughs> Wait, 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 like, honestly? Can we do a quick check-in, though? But is it the guy who killed Lincoln? I is mean, it the one who killed the president of the United States? Is he famous for something else? <laughs> he is famous for other things. All right. Well, I think I'm about to learn. Well, he's born in Maryland in 1838. He's born into one of the most famous acting families. The Booth family is basically like the Barrymores. Mm. So he's the second youngest of 10 children only six of which survive into adulthood it's the 1830s shit's hard um his father is this junius guy his mother is junius's mistress mary ann holmes now junius famous actor is married to another woman his mistress has john wilkes booth the divorce happens in 1851 because of adultery, and then he remarries John Wilkes Booth's mom. Mm. Little confusing. I don't know how important that is in this story, but like, I guess it's like actors be cheating. I think that's sort of like the theme that I want you to take away from this. Oh, wow. Okay. So Ouch. just like guard your loins. So his sister, Asia, wrote a book later on in life, Asia Wilkes Booth or something, just or Asia Booth, we'll call her. His sister, Asia, wrote that. John Wilkes' mother, after she gave birth to him, she was like six months old and she was sitting by the fire and she was like, will John Wilkes Booth be a source of good or evil? The flames burned into the outline of the United States and then it revealed John Wilkes Booth's name in the fire. So they were like, that doesn't seem like a direct answer. Well, I think with all questions like that, like a Ouija board, like, no one's giving evil. like, yes. and they're like, USA. <laughs> and you're like, not what I asked. It's a, you know, and then again, but what it is, it's like a horoscope, right? Because like you can go back and be like, ah, they were right. USA and his name. He's famous for the U.S. for killing a fucking president. No fucking way. I feel like the flames were cheating the way most psychics do. And I they were like, feel USA. like the Listen, flames weren't doing anything. Question. I want to be clear. I will clear. answer USA. And I guarantee in six months you're going to be like, she was right. Exactly. But here's the thing. I don't think the flames are the ones that had a conscious and did something to trick his mother. I think his mother saw something and maybe later justified it. I don't know. Because Asia's book did come out after he killed President Lincoln. Yeah, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, and Apparently, fire is USA. So, 
in school, he was like athletic. I guess he was smart. He didn't really love to apply himself. Um, but when he did go to school in high school or something, he went into a fortune teller and they told the fortune teller told him that he was dealt a bad hand and that his life would be hard and he would die young. And he wrote this down and he carried it in his pocket his whole life. George Wilkes, John, John Wilkes Booth did. Terrible idea. Again, it's interesting, though, because, right, it's like when someone tells you a prophecy and you buy into it, it's like, I don't do think you... psychics are supposed to do that. Be like, this is going to go poorly. You should talk to this fortune teller, actually. You should write her a Yelp review. Be like, you actually are what caused this. <laughs> One star caused Lincoln's assassination. <laughs> That's the name of the episode. One star cost Lincoln a <laughs> I really like that. One star cost Lincoln assassination. Would not go back. Would not go back. <laughs> Highly don't recommend. But also like, okay, so someone gives you shit news and you're like, ah, I'm going to put this on a piece of paper and carry it with me. And like symbolically and physically carry it with me. Because you know, he's like, I was dealt a bad hand. Now he becomes an actor. He follows in his father's footsteps. But also he has another brother, Edwin Booth, who's like a more famous, more seriously considered actor. Like Mm. I did get the vibe that Edwin Booth was like the creme de la creme. And John Wilkes Booth was kind of the like eccentric kind of crazy guy he was described as unstable and eccentric he did a lot of shakespearean plays george wilkes booth and his favorite role was brutus which i don't know if you know this but famously he's the killer of caesar um slayer of tyrants um at one point junius edwin and john were all in julius caesar at the winter garden theater in Manhattan and in, in Manhattan um, on Broadway. And he played Mark Antony and his brother played Brutus. So <gasps> it's kind of like, Ooh, yeah, et tu Brutus. Et tu Brute. Um, the proceeds from that actually went to erecting a Shakespeare statue in Central Park where it still stands. I know that statue. Yes, that was erected based on John Wilkes Booth, Edwin and Junius's performance of Julius Caesar. Wow. At the height of his career, he's earning 20000 a year, which in today's days is like $600,000. So, like, making some money. He's born in Maryland, but he does consider himself a Southerner. Um, he supports slavery. He is a white supremacist. Um, he is obviously a Southern sympathizer. His brother Edwin is a unionist. So, like, there are political divides within the Booth family. He promised his mother he would never join the army, but he does help the South in other pursuits. So I want to be very clear. Maryland did not, they their legislature voted not to secede with the South, although there were a lot of Southern sympathizers in Maryland at the time of the Civil War. Um, and there's some other political stuff that happened that I don't think is totally important to the story. But what's important to note is that, like, he's technically from the North, but was sympathizing with the South. And he was actively trying to help the South, even though he did not join the army. Like, he would We've send... We've all been there, Jon Snow. Johns. There's so much Johns. <laughs> so he's sending, like, malaria drugs to the Confederate troops because the North, the North in the, some of the battles were stopping drugs from getting down there, like malaria drugs. 
um, by the Gulf Coast, the North was stopping those drugs. So John Wilkes Booth was helping the South by sending them drugs. Um, At the time, he was still performing, but the Civil War was coming up and it seemed like his opinions that he was becoming really vocal about, Mm -hmm. people deemed him a traitor Mm -hmm. in his world. And so I think work work was not coming to him with the same amount of frequency. In some cases, he was banned from the stage for treasonable statements. He obviously hated President Lincoln. Um, in the early 19... So the Civil War, I think it started in six, 1861 or 1860. I actually should look that up because I'm not going to trust you to tell me because we all know that you don't know anything. Karen, it was 1860. Do you think it was? Yeah. I think... I think it was, too. I'm just saying it really confidently, so I sound like I know. I don't actually 1861. Know. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, it felt like a 50-50. It was a 50-50, but it was 1861 the Civil War started. And in early 1863, John Wilkes Booth was arrested in St. Louis while he was on tour doing theater because um, he said he wished the president and the whole damned government would go to hell. And he was charged with making a treasonous remark against the government. Um, He was released after he took an oath of allegiance to the union and paid a fine. Okay. So like, obviously he's a Southern sympathizer. He thinks them seceding was the brave thing to do. Like he's a white supremacist. He's, he supports slavery. Like there's not anything redeeming about this guy. He's not a friend of the podcast. (laughs) No way, no how. So the civil war is four years in. And in 1864, or three years in, the Civil War is three years in, and in 1864, he's like, I got to do something about this. Weirdly, after he took this oath of um, allegiance to the Union, it didn't stick. I guess forcing someone to take an allegiance of oath maybe isn't the same as someone coming to it on their own. Just a thought, just a hunch. So... He starts to meet with this group of people, of like 10 other people, and they set up a plot to kidnap President Lincoln and hold him hostage until he releases Confederate prisoners of war. So in this plan is going to happen March 17th, 1865. They have word that Lincoln is going to go to a hospital for wounded soldiers. And so they show up. They're ready to go. They have this plan to kidnap the president. But Lincoln never shows. So like, ah. Oh, Plan busted. April 9th is when Robert E. Lee, the general for the South, surrenders. Now, at the time, just because of the way news spread, there were still this guy, General Joseph E. Johnston, kept fighting. So some Southern sympathizers and people in the South had this, like, false hope that somehow the South would rise again, or, I mean, people still have that fucking hope, but some people had this hope that the South could still win in, like, a miraculous sort of crazy thing happening, even though Robert E. Lee surrendered. Two days after Robert E. Lee surrendered, Lincoln gives a speech, and John Wilkes Booth is in attendance, and at the speech, Abraham Lincoln says he believes that Black veterans and Black people with an education should get the right to vote. Now, we don't love the caveats, but he was urging the movement of having Black people being able to vote. Booth was there. He didn't like this idea, obviously. He's a fucking white supremacist. 
he turns to his friend and he says, that is the last speech he will ever make. So they change the plan from kidnapping and they say they want to kill him. To dial M for murder. To dial M for murder. In addition to killing Lincoln, their plan was also to kill the vice president, Andrew Johnson, and secretary of state, William Seward. A little piece of information about this. The order of like, the order of, it's not vice president, then secretary of state. I think it's like Senate pro temp or something like that. I think it is. Either way, they don't even kill like the three orders. Like it's. They don't even read the constitution. Yeah, they don't. Well, they're like, (laughs) they don't even get, they don't read the instruction manual to the government. But they're like, these are three powerful guys. And their goal was to like, they're like, kill kill that guy and his secretary and his dog. (laughs) Well, apparently, secretary of state and vice president, they are big names. But so you say. (laughs) So you say, I should default to you with any government (laughs) understanding. You know what? I'm wrong. So. They want to kill these three people because, again, there's still this hope that news hadn't spread to all of the battlefields and that there was still this hope that the South could still win. And if they took out sort of the head of the Union, there was hope for the South. So it's April 14th, 1865, and news spreads that Lincoln is going to the Ford Theater to see our American cousin. It's a comedy in Washington, D.C. Boy, is it ever. Hmm. Booth actually performed at this theater, so he knows it really well. In fact, he was one of the first leading men to play in that theater. Also of note is that Booth had performed in front of Abraham Lincoln before, and apparently during a line of dialogue, he looked right at Abraham Lincoln and he shook his finger at him. So obviously that Lincoln's sister-in-law looked at him and she said, Mr. Lincoln, he looks as if he meant that for you. And the president replied, he does look pretty sharp at me, doesn't he? He went full immersive. He went full immersive. Audience engagement. Totally. Intense. Booth is the one who's going to go and kill Abraham Lincoln. That's his job. Then Lewis Powell, a Confederate soldier, and David Harold, a pharmacist, Their job was they were going to go kill the secretary of state at his home while he was healing from a carriage accident. Mm -hmm. And then this guy, George Adzerat, his job was he transported Confederate spies to the north and back. He would go and kill uh, Vice President Andrew Johnson at the Kirkwood House Hotel. Mm -hmm. So there's these three men, there's three groups who are going to go and kill these three men on the same night. So John goes, John Wilkes Booth goes to the Ford Theater at 6 p.m. And he is allowed access to the theater, no problem, because of his relationship with the theater. And he's been a performer there for years. So he goes and they say that he tampers with the box that the president will be in. He goes into the box and he maneuvers it so that he can get in and then lock it from the outside so no one can follow him in. There's also reports that he drilled a hole in the door so that he could, like, look at the president. But they say that that was already there and existed. So that night, the show starts. It is a comedy, Our American Cousin. And Lincoln is there with his wife, Mary Todd, Major Henry R. Rathbone, and his fiance Clara Harris. Now, a fun little fact is that Abraham Lincoln was supposed to be there with General um, Ulysses S. Grant, But he couldn't make it, so he brought this Henry Rathbone. At around 10 o'clock, John Wilkes Booth returns to the theater, 
someone on stage says that they saw him enter the lobby from on stage. And again, this was normal because he was an actor there. Mm -hmm. She says her climactic line in the third act of the play, and John Wilkes Booth uses it as a diversion to get to Lincoln's box. He hides and waits. He opens the door. He's in the box with Abraham Lincoln. No bodyguards. No bodyguards. Interesting. He hides. A huge laugh line comes. As the audience is laughing, John Wilkes Booth uses that as an opportunity to point a gun at the back of Lincoln's head and shoots him in the head. The theater hears the, sh- the shot. Immediately there is confusion. The actors on stage are like, is this a prop that went off? Like, we don't know what's going on. The audience is like, is this a part of the play? No one knows. So John Wilkes Booth has his gun. The bullet enters Lincoln's left side of his head and travels through his brain and stops right behind his right eye. Rathsbone, the general that's with him, stands up, sees John Wilkes Booth, grabs his coat. The gun falls But John Wilkes Booth has a dagger. He swipes at Rathbone, gets him in the shoulder. He then jumps from the box. And in some form of symbolism, the spurs on John Wilkes Booth's shoes catches on a flag. And it causes him to stumble and fall onto the stage where he breaks his leg. Mm. He stands up. He says, Sic Semper Tyrannis, which means thus always not tyrants, goes to the exit out stage right towards the stage door. People claim that he says the South is avenged. The orchestra conductor sees this happening. He tries to stop Booth. Booth swipes at him with the dagger, runs away with the broken leg, goes out the stage door, gets on a horse that is waiting for him. He rides away. Getaway horse. He has a getaway horse. All right. There's a call for a surgeon in the in the theater. Obviously, people start jumping up into the president's box to see what's going on, to see what's happening. The doctor informs them that he's not going to make it through the night. He is carried out in his rocking chair that he was sitting in, which, by the way, that was his seat at the theater was a rocking chair. That rules. He's carried across the street to a boarding house where he is laid on the bed diagonally because he is so tall. He does not fit onto the bed. He dies the next morning at 7.22 a.m. Famously, as he died, after he died, the quote, now he belongs to the ages, was said at his deathbed. Like I said, Lincoln wasn't the only target that night. Powell and Harold, the two other guys who were supposed to go to the Secretary of State Sewell's home, they arrive there at 10 p.m. They knock on the door claiming that they were delivering drugs from his doctor. Powell goes in. Harold goes outside to wait. Powell walks in and he sees the Secretary of State laying in bed. He grabs a knife. He stabs him. He slashes him and delivers two slashes to the throat. Now, remember I told you he had a carriage accident, which was why he was in bed. Because of the carriage accident, he was wearing a metal collar around his throat, which saved his life. And he did not die. Oh. The men run away. The other guy, Adderot or whatever, Asderot, he was supposed to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson. Well, that guy chickened out and he went to the bar and just got drunk. 
Fair. So Booth is running away on his horse. Harold meets him. And so it's the two of them that are escaping. I don't know what happened to Powell, but Harold and Booth are like running away on their horses. Booth is keeping a diary of his time. And he's saying that the bone of his leg was tearing into his flesh. Every jump he made on his horse because of his broken leg. <laughs> he's also writing the diary while he's So the on lettering horseback. is really so it's bad. Really, it's impossible. It's to actually read. really hard. To Nearly read. illegible. Historians. Incredible. They ride to Maryland. They meet at a friend's house who ends up setting Booth's fibula. They give him food, rest, horses, and the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth commences. <laughs> food, rest, and horses. That's what the doctor ordered. That's what the doctor ordered. Obviously, there's a lot of disdain for President Lincoln at the time because it's the Civil War and it's a polarizing time for the country. But when he was killed, obviously, some people were happy that John Wilkes Booth did it. But even the Southerners were like, what the fuck did you do? Like, this was not what we wanted. Like, even in the assassination of President Lincoln, people were not happy. In fact, Booth wrote in his diary, I struck for my country and that alone, a country that groaned because this tyranny and prayed for this end. And yet now behold the cold hand they extend to me. He's sitting there running away, you know, while this manhunt is happening. There's a reward for $100,000 for him. He's going through the forest. He's going through swamps. And he's reflecting on, like, Wow, nobody's happy I did this. Fucking egomaniac. Where, where's my thank you? Yeah, where's my thank you? Wow. So he ends up going to Northern Virginia. And it takes two weeks. And on April 22nd, they find him near a tobacco farm in Virginia. Harold, his partner, immediately surrenders. But Booth doesn't. They're, like, trying to negotiate with Booth in a farm. And eventually they just put the farm on fire to quite literally smoke him out. And when he gets out... And the out, fire's like, USA, <laughs> USA. And Booth's like, enough of that. Enough. So as Booth is like running out, he is shot in the neck and is immediately paralyzed. There's talk like, did he shoot himself? But it was one of the troopers who shot him. And he is killed. His last words were, tell my mother I died for my country. Um, hmm. he's brought to the porch, back to the porch, and he dies there. He is 26 years old. Wow. So young. So young. I didn't realize how young he was until I read this. In his pocket, there was a compass, a candle, a picture of five women, a bunch of actresses, which just makes me be like, you're an asshole. Like, not you couldn't pick one. Probably cheating on all of them. He had a fiance, this woman, Lucy Hale. There were four other women that he was carrying their pictures around. Yeesh. And in his diary where he had written of Lincoln's death, our country owed all her troubles to him. And God simply made me the instrument of his punishment. He was ID'd by a scar on his neck and that he had a JWB tattoo on his hand. At the autopsy, the third, fourth and fifth vertebrae were removed um, to make way for the bullet. Um, And those vertebrae are on display at the National Museum of Health and Science. So because the assassination is considered an act of war, a military commission was formed to bring the other conspiracy, um, the co-conspirators to trial, including the people who attacked William Sewell. Um, Obviously, John Wilkes Booth could not meet his justice because he was killed, um, but eight people were brought before the court. Um, Four of the co-conspirators were sentenced to death, including those three men and this woman, Mary Surratt. Mary Surratt owned a boarding home where the men met Mm -hmm. and she was put to death. 
Um, the four of those people were executed on July 7th, 1968, July 7th, 1865. And Mary Surratt, the woman, was the first woman to be executed by the U.S. Because she owned the boarding house they were in? Yeah. They killed her because she owned the boarding house. Mm-hmm. And she facilitated their meetings. Now, keep in mind that... That seems like a really whack punishment to be like, I owned the room they met in. Mm-hmm. Are you fucking kidding me? Nope. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then what's crazy is the three other men were sentenced to life in prison, or one of, one of which died while in prison, but the two other were later pardoned by Vice President Andrew Johnson. In 1869. Even though he's like, you almost killed me. You almost killed me, but you took it back. So maybe we good. Take backs. Um, Take backs are everything. The President Lincoln was the first president to lie in the rotunda at the Capitol, which is something that most presidents had the honor of. um, I think all presidents had the honor of lying in rotunda. What the fuck is that lying in rotunda? It's the, um, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in there. It's the, like, circular dome, I believe, at the Capitol. And you go in there and take a lie down? No, like, his body. (laughs) Like picture because we went to he the, was the first president to take a nap. <laughs> we went to the in the his, rotunda. We went to the history museum the other day. We lay on the floor underneath the whale. So I'm picturing a room that's really like pretty, like a rotunda, and you're like lying on the floor to get a good view of the whole architecture of the place. <laughs> he like, was the first president to like, lie listen, down. He's the first guy. They were like, "Have a lie down." <laughs> and you're like Ruth Bader. She was like, "I'll have a lie down. Don't check it out." Like I think it's when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would lie in the rotunda God. when her body was laid in the rotunda. That's where her trainer came and did push-ups by her coffin. Remember that? Okay. Um, His body was moved back to his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. um, And it took 13 days because of all the stops the train made. 1.5 million people saw his coffin as it traveled on the journey from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois. And at night, they said that people put lights on the tracks. Mm Mm-hmm. And would kneel by the train as it passed by their town. So pretty. On the opposite end of the spectrum, John Wilkes Booth's body was buried in a secret grave and was later released to the Booth family. He had autopsies. Like I said, his vertebrae are now in a museum. The North obviously considers him a madman. The South believes he cursed them for a harsh revenge as opposed to the reconciliation that President Lincoln had promised, Mm. right? Because it became retaliatory. Mm. There are conspiracies that he escaped. Mm. And so there's been this, like, you know, people think he moved to Japan. People think he's this other guy. Like, people think he's D.B. Cooper. People think he's D.B. Cooper. Like, people, uh, yeah, people think he escaped. I'm not inclined to believe that, but they're like, we need to test the tissues. We had Edwin Booth, his brother's DNA. We got to, like... Get the grave, like we have to dig them up. There's been a request to get DNA samples from the vertebrae in the museum. That's been denied. But of course, you know, there's this conversation about if John Wilkes Booth actually was killed at the end of this. Hmm. But but that's a story of John Wilkes Booth. He really did kill Lincoln, turns out. Kill Lincoln. And it's so crazy, too, because obviously there's no cameras at this time. It's like the late 1860s, or there are cameras, but... So all of the, like, reenactment of him at the theater mm-hmm. are all pictures that people have drawn, mm-hmm. which I just think is kind of a funny – it's not funny, but, like, 
nowadays it's like everybody's would pull out their phone and everybody have a firsthand knowledge but now people were just sitting sketching as fast as they could when, mm-hmm. the house, when it, everyone mm-hmm. stood still and sketched. Everyone stood and just grabbed out grabbed like a, a little piece of graphite and just really went for it mm-hmm. but it's interesting because in that way like all we've seen is a representation we've seen photos of john, john wilkes, wilkes booth was drawing a quick selfie before he went in yeah just doing a quick selfie i just it's interesting because it does feel like having sketches of something like this puts a little distance between because we're so used to mm-hmm. having photos of it oh, of totally what happened there was a photo or there was a drawing that i saw of lincoln in his deathbed um but yeah that is the story of well John thanks Wilkes for Booth. telling it did you learn anything oh no i knew all of that did you really yeah i knew all of it no, I didn't fuck. Do you remember not 10 minutes ago my asking you if he killed Lincoln? Of course I didn't know any of it. I don't know things about history. But I'll be honest, the more I know. Don't know much about history. The more I'm convinced. Are you still alive? That Lincoln is still alive today. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you have to think about what makes sense. And to me. And that just makes sense, That's by the, the way. obvious. Um, And now, a word from our sponsors. Oh, sure. We know you're here because you like listening to people tell stories. We have something super exciting to share with you. It is not a podcast. It is a musical novella called Love in Times of War. It's a beautiful story set to music. It is a 28-cut concept album with 14 spoken word narrations and 14 instrumentals that complement and evolve the story And you can listen to it on Spotify. You can listen to it on Apple Music. You can buy the album. It is written and narrated by Beck Norman. The music is composed by James Keith Norman. It's a story of a pregnant young woman who's lost her lover in a war. And she sets out to raise her child until history repeats itself. It's engaging. It's impactful. It's also featuring Stephen Fry, which is pretty darn cool. But please go listen to Love in Times of War. It's a beautiful story, such a gorgeous music, and you won't regret it. Hey, we're back. Or are we? Or are we talking from the past? Because we're super safe with Birdie. (laughs) Birdie, you guys, Birdie envisions a world where women can be safe, where they can uh, walk down the street and just uh, do their thing, not really worry about... uh, Can I tell you something, actually, about Birdie? I was in Chicago with a friend... And she had a really cute purple birdie. They didn't have that color when I bought mine or mm-hmm. my mom bought me mine for Christmas. It was this really cute lavender birdie. And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Where'd you get it? She goes, my sister gave it to me. She goes, she had a really scary experience. This guy was fucking following her from the train, her Ugh. sister. And she kept walking and this guy was still fucking following her. And she went up to this guy who was in her neighborhood who was like putting trash out. And she went up to him and she was like, can I please stand by you? There's a man following me. He's like, yes, come this way. After that happened to her, she bought a birdie and she bought one for her sister and she bought one for her whole family. That's so smart. Get a birdie for yourself. Get a birdie for your friend. Get a birdie for your daughter and get a birdie for your son. I think like everybody can have a birdie. I carry mine on my bike so that if something happens, I just pull it. So smart. It Mm -hmm. sets off a strobe light. It has like a really loud noise. It's just going to, even if you never use it, which hopefully you are never going to use it, um, except at a weird sound rave or something. But I hope you don't have to use it, but you're going to feel better if you have it. So get one today and use the promo code TDC10. 
you get 10% off. It's a no-brainer. We love you. Stay safe and um, buy a birdie. And And we're back. back. I'm going to do the story of Robert Freegard. This story, I got my information from The Guardian, Wikipedia, Independent, BBC, Grunge, Cinemaholic, Journal, and oh, a really good, um, I guess it's maybe his blog, but it's this journalist, Jay Cheshire's. C-H-E-S-H, this is hard to say, C-H-E-S-H-E-S, Cheshes, right? Cheshes? Say that. That's hard. Cheshes. Yeah, that's hard. That's not easy to say. No, that's not. I couldn't say Secretary of State. Yeah, that's hard too, though. (laughs) (laughs) SOS. We're going to go SOS William Sewell. Um, No, this journalist had a really good article, but the um, the other information I got was from this killer three-part docu-series on Netflix called Puppet Master. Ooh. Really, really good. So I watched that and was like, what? How come I haven't heard about this? And then I basically tried to read everything I could read about it. And Jay was my best bet for that because he's the only person that really had lots of new things to say about it. Um, But it's a wild story. And if I didn't already say so, this is going to be a two-part situation because my notes got a little out of hand. And I think um, rather than <laughs> keep you here for 300 years, I'll tell you some of it and then we'll take a break and I'll tell you more on the next week's episode. Okay. That's how a two-parter works. I don't know if you I don't know could if you just know. explain what a two-parter was. And I want to be clear. It means we're taking what's typically a one-part and we're making it into two. It'll be two instead. It'll That's be correct. two instead. Yeah. But don't worry, you're still going to get two stories per episode. But one is going to be half really this is in that way it's sort of a ripoff because this is a one and a half story episode you could argue but we mm. did sing three songs so i know you know high low high low here's the thing though i'm already an hour in because my story was long oh fuck well away we go <laughs> so let me just start this off by saying that coercive abuse is a thing that works we've seen it with people like larry ray and I think a lot of domestic abuse victims, this Suffer. is very yes. common. Coercive abuse is when you are feeling a mixture of, let's say, it can either be love or fear or a mix of both. Cults. And it causes you to give the perpetrator your trust. And when you do that, you have the perfect storm where you can endure almost any humiliation at their hands and you will do almost anything they tell you. It's how cults work. It's how coercive abuse works. It's how bad vegan, if anybody saw that recently, that was a story of coercive abuse that was pretty crazy. This is a story of coercive abuse perpetrated by a man named Robert Freegard. The story is going to start in 1993. At this point in Robert's life, he's dropped out of high school. He had been a carpenter. He is in Newport, England. He's only been here a few months, got a job as a bartender. He's a handsome guy, six feet tall, dark curly hair, super de-duper confident is his vibes. What had happened last year is that he was 20 and he met this woman that was, I think, like six or seven years older than him. And she became his first serious girlfriend and he was super into her. She was a school teacher named Allison Hopkins. 
he comes to this town in pursuit of her. He has been telling her when they were dating, I've got tons of shit just going my way. I'm a guy you want to hitch to because he's 20. So he has to like blow his life out of proportion. And I think this is one of the first indications we see of him wanting to fib a little bit and be like, listen, things are going my way. You just need to lend me a little bit of money. And she does. And when he has her ATM card, he takes more money than he said he would. He gets dumped by her. He wants her back. She goes to Newport. He follows. He tells a friend of his that his plan is to kidnap her with the help of a few other guys. But that friend goes to the cops. So this plan does not flourish. It's not clear. It is hard to. It is hard for a plan to go in motion if the police get involved. Yeah, you don't want them involved in your kidnapping. So he doesn't kidnap her, but he's uh, finds himself bartending there. The temperature there is that. The Irish Republican Army, also known as just the IRA, they've declared war. Terrorists are planting bombs. Life there has been, I don't know, an upheaval, disrupted. People are nervous and upset. There's a college there in the town of Newport, and it's been under surveillance because a student, it turns out, was associated with the IRA and was caught with guns and ammo. There's a man named John Atkinson. I mean, I want to say a man. I want to say a boy. He's in college. You be the judge of that. Not a boy, not yet. Yeah. Thank you. The college is Harper Adams Agricultural College. His parents are, he comes from like farmland. So he's going to agricultural school. Can you say that again? He's a farmer. But say that he's going to what school? Agricultural how do you say it? Can that I was say right, it but the first time I said you were agricultural. like agricultural. <laughs> Something like, like I had a you, few. You like I'd had, had a, a little drunk. You were like, okay. let's just moving on. He's got an agricultural school. <laughs> it's hard to say. This is a this <laughs> whole story is actually not real. It's just a tongue twister. <laughs> Mine too. It's a really long tongue twister. We just did what? This is a tongue. And so repeat after us. <laughs> repeat after me. <laughs> John Atkinson College, Harper, Addis Agricultural College in Newport, England, 1993. Okay. Then one of his friends at the school commits suicide, his friend Gary. And it super catches him off guard and totally bumps it out. He's at the pub talking to bartender Rob, who's Robert Freegard, who he knew because Rob had actually started dating one of the gals at the college, Mary Hendy. Mary Hendy is one of John's roommates. He lives in like one of those little houses. So he has a few different little roommates in this house on campus. Housemates, some might call it. Housemates, sure. Probably do call it flatmates even if you're from another land. Okay. Flatmates, love that. So he confides in Rob that he's going through the shits. He's like, my friend killed himself. I'm so sad. I don't know why. And I don't know why. Sounded pretty obvious why he'd be sad, but no, okay. I don't know why he killed himself. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Rob is like, "Here's the thing, he didn't." And he's like, "What?" And he's like, "The IRA shot him. I'm sure of it, and made it look like a suicide." The thing is, your friend Gary that you think killed himself, he probably saw something on campus he wasn't supposed to, and then they had to kill him. You know what? Here's the thing. Come to my apartment. It's above the bar. They go up there. There's a bunch of weird boxes and suitcases everywhere. 
Robert's been there a while, but his stuff is still not set up and unpacked. It looks like he's on the move a little bit. And he says to him, do you really think I'd live in a hole like this? They give me this stuff to make it look like I live here, but I don't live here and I'm not going to be here long. The thing is, I am an MI5 agent and we are looking for a cell. Now, keep in mind everything I just told you. They found that somebody at the school was associated. So this is stuff that's like in the air. And it's they're afraid of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he says, John. We need somebody on the inside at the school. We need a student. You've been chosen as the student. You've been vetted. You're the next contestant on Find the Cell. So we've got to find the fucking cell. Okay? Now, we're going to have to take some pretty drastic measures to get this thing done. So just listen to me, and it's going to be fine. You know what we should do? You know what we should do, John? Spread a rumor you're gay. Spread a rumor you're gay. Let's trace the rumor. We can start to find out who's talking to who. I think this was his intro test of humiliation to be like, what's this guy going to do if I tell him to do it? So he does. Not only that, but he's like, I want you to dye your hair and start dressing differently. John will listen to anything he says and is doing all of it. He comes out to a group of his friends at the pub. And Robert is fucking loving it. He's like, hey, next up, I'm going to need you to skip some school and take some shifts at the bar, which I think the bar is called the Swan. So he's like, you're going to need to work at the Swan with me and get some jobs here and skip some class. Also, we need to make sure that you're willing to fight. I think a good way to test this would be to essentially get someone to attack you. Or to upset you so that you have an excuse to hit them. Because we just got to see if you can, like, fucking land a punch. I know what we'll do. Let's dress you super effeminately, like ridiculous over the top. When one of your roommates gets home, they'll probably laugh or say something. And then you'll fucking hit them. And all of this Mm -hmm, legit. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) And he's like, sure. Yeah. He Uh gives him a dumb haircut. Like, a bowl cut, puts him in a flower shirt, sends him home. His roommate gets there, laughs at him, and he fucking hits him to a point where the guy has to go to the hospital and has a broken tooth. Next up on fucking with John's head, Rob is like, actually, let's throw away the whole gay thing. Which let's change. Actually, let's change it up. Actually, change it up. Change it up. Change it up. I want you to ask out your roommate, Sarah, not not the guy, not the gal I'm dating. Mary, you ask out Sarah and he does. And they start to date. I think he legit liked Sarah and they start dating and it's a positive thing. Okay. Okay. So this is where everything sort of it already sounds bad. It gets bad to worse. It gets better. I think it's it gets better. He's, it gets batter, batter, batter. <laughs> batter. Yeah. We're making a cake with a lot of batter, and here we go. Oh, God. I just don't like it like this, like, I mean, he had to be like, I mean, obviously you said he was attractive, but he had to be just like magnetic fucking guy. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's um, a master manipulator. He's a master manipulator. He right. says, we've got to keep doing this physical stuff, training you to box. So, you know, we had already talked about training him to hit someone. He's like, you've got to know how to take a hit. And he basically uses this as an excuse to like meet up after work and just beat the shit out of John and make John let him beat the shit out of him. Again, just like a test. How far can I go? Jesus Christ. Remember, he has to keep up the, this is important work we're doing. I'm MI5 and you work for me. So he gives him a journal and he's like, you've got to write down cars license plates that park on campus close to the fertilizer store because they could be somebody getting fertilizer for a bomb or something. So he's having them log like he's basically doing this thing where he's like, John, think about who is suspicious. And that makes John's brain think people yeah. are suspicious. Yeah, right. For sure. So he is like, you need to keep a list of anybody you think could be IRA. So John is keeping this list, bringing it to Robert. And Robert looks and sees that John wrote down one of his roommates, somebody that lives with him, Sarah and Mary. And he goes, oh, my God. Bingo. You're really good at this, John, because this guy, he's totally, definitely IRA. Actually, we have to get you all out. It's no longer safe for you. No. One of your car windshields got smashed recently. One of your cars got broken into, which is true. I don't know that it was robbed, but that all did happen. And it's four months prior to graduation, but we've got to get you guys the fuck out of here. And he's like, okay, what do I do? Because your girlfriend Mary doesn't know, and Sarah doesn't know, that we're, like, working for MI5. MI5. So what should we do? And he's like, glad you asked. I want you to tell them that you have terminal cancer and that there's no treatment and that you only have a few weeks to live. So we're going to go on a really crazy road trip together to spend these last few weeks with you. They won't be able to say no. And we'll figure it out as we go. So he's like, okay. He tells his girlfriend. He's dying. I'm dying. They get on the road together to go on this trip. And with Rob behind the wheel, who only plays apparently Duran Duran. (laughs) He plays Ordinary World on repeat (laughs) on a level that would make anyone crazy. How wild is that? That is such a weird, weird piece of information but i also love it because it's so weird like it's almost like he's doing torture things like under the guy like he's like um he's a friend that's gonna torture you oh wow smart so john feels terrible that he lied to his girlfriend but he's also like i'm doing it for a bigger I'm purpose an agent. i have a yeah i have like, bigger purpose. i basically work for an agent now so at one point they're like 10 days in and i think there's been a lot of questions at this right. point and rob is like Eh, guys, okay, there's actually a thriller afoot. No cancer. Sarah's like, you're MI5. Can you show me something that, like, says you're MI5? Or And he's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to tell you things about yourself. I'm going to tell you things about your family, their land, their finances. And because he's able to do this, she convinces, she's convinced, okay, I guess he does work for the government. And she goes with it. Sarah's dad is getting really worried. He hasn't heard from her. He's called the school. They're like, she hasn't been in class. Her car got left at school. 
Finally, Sarah calls her dad, Peter Smith, and says, we're coming to see you. All of them go to Sarah's house, Sarah Smith, and they sit down with Sarah's parents and they're like, we've got to do it. He tells them we got to do our cover story. We can't tell them MI5. So they sit down and they say to the, the parents, the reason all this has happened, that I've left school, that this is going on is that John's sick. John has a terminal illness. Peter just like knows it's not true. Like he's sensing his daughter being weird. He's watching John and he's like, this is not a kid with a terminal illness. Right. This isn't what's happening. This is so weird. They get out of it by saying, basically Rob says to the dad, I'm taking them back in two weeks. They're going back to school. Don't worry about it. Obviously, they don't ever go back to school. So Peter is trying to get a hold of her, can't, but he's getting Sarah's credit card bills. He starts to do a map on the wall of where the charges are. Totally. So he's like, they're here. They're here. Now they're here. And it's crazy because the map does not make any sense. It's like, beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, everywhere. Because Rob doesn't have like a place in mind or a mission. He has no fucking plan. He's just like in it for, well, to take people's money, but also to just live this fake life of being an MI5 agent. Like he wants, he's like an adult. Plain pretend harp. Cosplay. He's a LARPer. He's He's a LARPer. He's LARPing. He's just LARPing. No one else knows he's LARPing, which is the problem. And he's using their money to LARP. And you know what? Friends don't lend friends you though. Their friends' money is for LARPing. But he can see that what Sarah's buying, and she's buying LARPing stuff. I mean, she's buying like men's clothes. And he's like, why is my daughter doing that? Who knows? Sarah calls Peter, her dad, at one point and says, listen, I'm actually, I am leaving school. Because I got offered a graduate trainingship at an insurance firm, at an insurance firm, so she's gonna drop out of school to do that. I roll. He calls the insurance firm, and, and like, he's able to instantly. Yeah, he can verify that the money. I'm she sorry, said she I don't was know Sarah. Get, I don't no. know a Sarah Smith. What? No, of course not. It's all so bizarre to him though, because Sarah has never lied. No, she's, she's not. This is out of character for her. How do you solve a problem like Maria? You know, six months Look pass. Maria Hendy is pregnant with Rob's child. No. Yes. <gasps> or does he just tell her she's pregnant and she believes him? <laughs> right. I feel like that would work with this guy. Peter keeps fucking tracking them. Dad Peter is like on the move. He the cops won't help because they're like they're adults. So. Peter is tracking them and finds their safe house and breaks in. But it's empty. It's not empty. They ditched it, though. He's able to find some of their stuff. And he's like, this is Sarah's stuff. What's so creepy is in the midst of their stuff, he finds a piece of paper and picks it up and starts reading it. And it is verbatim the phone call he had with his daughter where it says, like, Hi, Dad. I got offered a job at this insurance firm. And it's verbatim what she said to him. And he realizes she was handed a script for that call. Oh, God. He is super creeped out. Now, while they're on the run, Rob is still issuing control over them in crazy ways. He tells Sarah that she needs to get a blonde pixie cut. 
not attractive, hard okay. to pull off. I have to say, is he Amer- Is he Tyra Banks? Is he Tyra Banks from America's Next Top Model? Because she never could pick out good hairstyles, but she was like, do you think Tyra Banks... She was happy to hand them out. She handed them out so aggressively and inappropriately. Here's my question. Do you think Tyra Banks is the OG coercive abuser of TV? I'm just saying. (laughs) Throwing it out there. I'm not comfortable diagnosing. (laughs) What happens is he makes them get a job. So he's, uh, you know... John, you're going to go by Jamie. You're going to work at this bar. And he says, Sarah, you're going to go by Betty Smith. You're going to work at this fish and chips place. And they are in a repetitive cycle where they go to work and they come into a home that he controls. They don't talk to anybody. They've been told that if they do talk to somebody, it could put them all in danger. So they have no friends and no outside uh contacts Influence. they can't like have any well i just like imagine them working at this fish shop and being like so betty where are you from right <laughs> they probably were thought of as such weirdos but they were victims totally <laughs> next time you watching... think someone's a weirdo just know they might be a victim of course of abuse yeah check in <laughs> they're going home and watching the news and anything that's about the ira or any violence being perpetrated is just feeding into this idea that they are in danger right and they're giving ron all their money here's our paycheck in 1994 rob, all the money you what? said ron giving ron all the money giving rob all their money in 1994, they've been gone a year. Peter calls John's parents and they say, we've been sending this guy money to protect our kid from the IRA. And it all suddenly falls Light together in his moment. head. This guy, what he's doing. Meanwhile, Rob is telling Sarah that he needs to get money for a new identity and it's going to cost 200,000 pounds. What he needs is an inheritance that is hers, but she needs her passport to get it. So he drives her to her house and says, you've you've got, you know, however much time, three minutes to go in and get this thing. He goes when her parents aren't there because he, you know, I think he knows that Peter is Mm -hmm. no fan of his. She runs in, goes to the safe, opens it, and her passport is gone. It's not there. There's nowhere else to look. Rob's pissed. What had happened is Peter, of course, being wise to something like this happening, hid her passport in a safe she didn't know about under the boards in the floor. What I think is also really funny is that he didn't change the code to the safe, too. Right. That's super funny to me where it's like a little bit of a mind fuck, like give her because otherwise she'll look further. Right. She'll look more. But the same. that's so weird. Yeah. But instead of uh, Rob, you know, yelling at Peter when because he gets so pissed this happens. He actually makes John call Peter and well, yell at Peter. He was trained, you know, to take a beating, so, you know. And to give one, apparently, because he really has this call where he's nasty to Peter, and Peter's like, what? You know, it's just so <laughs> off-putting. Yeah, when someone calls you and starts yelling at you, I agree. It is off-putting, Quinn. Yeah, I do agree. It's, not, it's quite off-putting. Nobody likes that. Mm-hmm. In 1996, Rob decides to start using this money that he's scammed to make himself into the agent. He wants to see himself as he's buying fancy shoes. He's buying fancy watches and suits and he gets a couple BMWs. A couple? Isn't that overkill? I was like, <laughs> settled down. a couple of cars? Well, he has a lot of money coming in because the thing is, even though he's in 1997, <laughs> well, so in 1997, Maria Hendy becomes his common-law wife, he changes his name to Robert Hendy Freeguard, which is all sort of a play to try to get her inheritance and make it seem like 
you know, he takes her name in the feminist move. He takes her. He's like, he's a feminist. (laughs) And like all feminists, he loves women. So in addition to his wife, he has to have a few girlfriends. Well, got to catch them all. Got to collect them all. He is a binder full of women. He is conning women on the side of this main con. Uh, Leslie Gardner is one. Elizabeth Bartholomew is another. We'll get to that. In 1998, she has still had no contact with her parents. Oh, my God. Sarah, and they've been on the run for five years. But Rob, at this point, is like, we have to... He separates all of them, the three of them. They've been together. He puts Maria in the Because, frankly, he's sick the of them, too. <laughs> frankly, he's like, this is too much. Yeah, it's a lot. Five years, a long camping trip. So he puts Maria in a house with the kids, because she ends up having two of his children. And he separates John and Sarah. From each other, too? From each other, too. All the money that they're earning is going to Rob for, like, basically this, like, witness protection. And he's still putting pressure on Sarah. You've got to get your inheritance. You've got to get your inheritance. So he makes her call her family with him in the room all the time, watching her. Sarah's mom, Jill, is going nuts. It's breaking her fucking heart. Five Years. Jesus. They would have to lay off a bunch of their employees, Peter and Jill, to satisfy this money that he wants. And of course, Peter is like, we're absolutely not giving them this money. Mm-hmm. But Jill, as the mom, is like, it's we have to do it. No. She doesn't know, but like her daughter calling in distress is getting to her. And they finally give a bunch of money to them. And they say, please don't call us again. And it's so devastating for Sarah, of course. They're like, don't ever call here. Rob lets John move back home. He thinks that he's suicidal, basically. Like, John's at a point where he's like, I'm going to keep asking him for money and keep making this family pay me. But I'm going to let him move back to his farm with his family. So John gets to move home. But, like I said, he's still, they're still on the hook. They're still being asked for money. And they're paying it? And they're paying it. Robert gets a job as a car salesman, which seems... It's all those cool James Bond suits. That seems right, though, to me. Yeah, what is he if not a used car salesman? His co-workers are not falling for his shtick for the most part, even though he's trying to... Because they're also car salesmen. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. He leaves Sarah alone in a safe house for like weeks. And it does this psychological thing where she's happy to see him when he comes because she's by herself all the time. A letter turns up at Peter Smith's house from John Atkinson, and it explains everything. He says, I want you to know these were the lies we told. This were what the stakes were. This is how it was revealed to me. This is how it all went down. Wait. John wrote Peter? Yes. Wow. Because he's like, I did this. I made this happen to Sarah. And I told her I was sick. And the reason I did it is this guy said he was MI5. But the thing is, um, over the last few years, we've paid Rob 400,000 pounds. And as I sit here on my farm, no one has come for me. No one's trying to kill me. No one's trying to figure out. No one's asking me questions. And at one point, I 
just refused payment to because I was like, I'm just not going to give you money. And then Rob just stopped calling me. And that's all that happened. That was the fallout. And I, I started to replay this whole thing in my mind. And I think maybe we were had. When he realizes it wasn't real, he's suicidal. Rob meets a woman named Renata Kister through the car salesman place. And she's pregnant. She got abandoned by the dude. And he sort of swoops in and acts like, hey, I'm going to save the day. And the arrangement he sort of has, because she doesn't have a lot of money he can take her for, is that he can keep shit at her house. So he gets at least storage out of the deal. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That's it, it comes in handy. It um, does. Around like 2000 or 2001, I want to say, he gets engaged to a lawyer named Carolyn Cowper. But he's common law married. It just doesn't. Common law. Fine. Okay. He meets. At this point, I'm common law married to you. You know, it's like. <laughs> doesn't it just mean you've hung out a long time? <laughs> he gets engaged to Carolyn Cowper and Maria finds out. But he's not really trying to be that secretive about it. In fact. He tells her it's over and that he wants to be with Carolyn. And he also tells her, and by the way, you need to call Carolyn and tell her uh, that I'm the real deal and all the stuff I'm telling her is real. She's like, I'm not going to do that. And so he gets violent and he threatens her and knocks her fucking teeth out. And it's the first time we've seen him like actively do violent behavior. Um, This is one of the first times I read about it. I mean, he used to beat John up, remember? Right. I think he has a violent streak for sure. And I right. think that this was not the first time he got physical with her, but this was of note because he knocked her teeth out. Right. In 2002, wow. Sarah has now been under his control for nine years. Oh, my God. She doesn't have an ID. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any family. She doesn't have any friends. She has oh. him. That is it. He takes her to a new safe house blindfolded. Puts her in a bathroom and locks it and tells her, you have to stay in here and don't make a sound. It is cold. It is dirty. It is a prison cell, essentially. And he leaves her there for a while. She's near starvation. And then one day he unlocks the door and says, do you want to be my girlfriend? To Sarah? Mm-hmm. Basically just being like, I'd like to have sex with you now. And she does it because she says, if I could do something at that point that was going to better my situation at all, I was going to do it. It's like, maybe there's a little bit of hope that I won't get, It's I don't like know, the definition of Stockholm Syndrome. Kept in a bathroom for eternity. In 2002, Rob adds another girlfriend to his list, but all the relationships I've told you about are ongoing. So he has like a lot of women that he's doing these cons on on all different levels make new girlfriends keep the old one gives you silver the other gold the other storage the other sex i don't know he convinces elizabeth bartholomew who we talked about to leave her husband and move to london and he starts doing these kind of tests on her to make sure he says that she's right material for a spy he's gonna make her a spy super cool well this is a promotion yeah yeah so he's like, you're going to be my spy wife, but I have to do all these tests to make sure that the job is right for you. So he's this basically has worked just, before. Like, it's just, she's on punked over and over and over again, Ugh. where he's like, it's all stuff, humiliating stuff. He makes her go to this place and get in a sari. She's white. 
and then in the sari go out in public and get like on a bus in it she, all these things that she feels sh- very ashamed to do and embarrassed by like people staring at her being like what is this woman doing and he's making her do it all in the name of it's a test he asks her to change her name he starts making her wait for him in places that he doesn't show up to like park benches and uh, i don't know like bus stations where he'll be like you just have to wait no matter how long it takes and she'll be there for days he basically starts to make her live as a homeless person after she's left a, a stable life behind. As for oh Sarah, my God. he is basically done with her, I think he's decided. Like, he doesn't know what to do with her anymore. He's bored of her, whatever it is. He already took all her money. He knows he can't get any more from her parents. What he ends up doing is... Going to that woman Renata's house, this, the woman he stores stuff at, and saying, because remember, everyone in his life thinks he's MI5. So he's like, this is a woman whose identity needs protection. You can call her, you know, gives her a different name and says, she needs to stay at your house and live with you. But she'll also basically be like your housekeeper. So he gifts Sarah to Renata, says that Sarah doesn't speak very good English. So he's trying to break down any conversations they could even have. No. Yes. No. Mm-hmm. And he says, you need to give her a place to stay for her safety. So he plunks Sarah there with Renata and leaves. Sarah is now a house cleaner going by a different name that supposedly doesn't speak English. Until they turn on Britney Spears and she starts singing it with a perfect oops, accent. Oops. Careful. Don't you know that it's toxic? <laughs> His fiance, Carolyn, she's a lawyer. She's, um, you know, she's getting a little sick of uh, his lies. The his, old runaround. Yeah, his theft. So she's like, you know what? Fuck all this noise. She calls a detective at Scotland Yard and says... This guy's basically taken me for 30,000 pounds and then, like, vanished. Um, They go to look for him. They go to the guys he worked with at the car place. And one of the guys is like, you know, that guy was MI5. (laughs) They're like, oh, really? And they're like, yeah, yeah, he used to take me on really cool covert missions. I mean, I just, like, drove the car, but I'd drop him off at a hotel and he'd go in. And then he'd run out like something crazy happened. And it was, it was pretty fun. You're like, yeah, I bet. So Scotland Yard's like, you <laughs> he know. He just like had a beer and then ran away. He <laughs> totally. Da- he, da- he had a getaway car for his dine and dash. Exactly. So Scotland Yard is like, you know, we looked into it and you're not going to believe this. He's not MI5. That guy's not MI5. Peter gets a hold of the same detective and they start to link these stories together and realize that there's more money that's been stolen. This guy's a bigger con artist than they possibly realized. So they're like, we've got to find Robert Freeguard. They go to his mom's house and they're looking around outside and they see a car. They're checking all the cars who they belong to. Right. One of them is registered to a house like 200 miles from there. And what f- flags their attention is that this car was bought in the garage that Rob worked at so they can connect it to him. They right. follow the address that the car is registered to and they knock on the door. 
Robert Freegard doesn't answer, but this man instead answers and says, oh yeah, I was living here with my ex-girlfriend who has since disappeared. Her name is Kimberly Adams. She's an American psychologist. She's an author. She's a single mom and she's vanished. But before vanishing, she did tell all her coworkers that she was terminally ill, which sounds super familiar. Tune in next week to see what happens when people stop being polite and start, start getting, getting conned. Getting conned. Ooh, yeah, good, better. Good, better. Good, better, best. Dear readers, we love you. Join Patreon. We love you so much, though. Really join Patreon. Thank you so much for being a listener. Join Patreon. I mean, the thing is, you guys, what we haven't told you is we've had to stop and go recording this whole episode because it's cute when Koa comes in and we do like a little anecdotal moment. But this entire time, he's been trying to break into the room we're recording in. And <laughs> in it's his been defense, it has probably... been a longer episode than he's used to. Is that him again? Koa? I hear you. That little ghost. The ghost is clear. The ghost is clear. The, here's the thing. The ghost isn't clear. The it's ghost is clear. right outside. The of ghost it. is right outside the door. With it. We should engage with it. All right, dear readers, we love you. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. Bye.